We're going to be looking at Philippians 4, 10 through 14 today. Now, inside these short verses, you know, these few short verses, lies an insanely popular verse. Philippians 4, 13. And depending on which tradition you come from of scripture memory, uh, more than likely, you have memorized this thing. I mean, I memorized it as a kid. It, it shows up on the ceilings of weight rooms. It shows up on bumper stickers. It shows up in hospitals. It shows up on, on stickers that people put on their Bible. And for some people, it shows up on their refrigerators when they're trying to lose weight. This is a really popular verse. You know, one of the problems as we come into this text is our Americanism. Now, we can't divorce our Americanism. We can't cut it away from us because this is what we were raised around. This is what we're so, you know, in tune to. But it creates a special problem for us. You see, one of the things about being an American that's kind of bought into our culture is that, that we can overcome anything. We, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So when we hear a verse about being strengthened, we're like, oh, dude, that is for me. Man, that is, that is my verse. I say that when I wake up in the morning. I say that when I go to bed at night. My wife says, the kids are sleeping, not so loud. But we take that verse and we run amok with it. We apply it to all areas of our life. But what we're going to see today, as we walk through these, through this passage, as we walk through verses 10 through 14, is I think Paul is offering something completely contrary to our American way of life. So join with me as we, as we read through these short few verses in the book of Philippians. Paul, writing in the fourth chapter, starting in the tenth verse, for the church in Philippi, penned these words. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So Paul opens this up, and the first thing he tells them, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord, that, it, that at some length, now you have revived your concern for me. So Paul writes to the, to the church in Philippi, and you'll remember as we have studied through this book, that Paul was in need, right? He's sitting in a, in a prison cell in Rome. He needs other people to meet his needs. He needs other people to send funds, money, food, clothing, to supply him, because it's not the Roman Empire's responsibility, it's not their place to care for prisoners. And so the church in Philippi gathered up some things, they gathered up some money, they gathered up some food, they gathered up some, some you know, notes of, you know, do well, Paul, and they appointed Epaphroditus and some other folks, and they said, hey, Epaphroditus, why don't you go along with these other people and, and take this gift to Paul? And now they have sent him a gift, and so he receives that. But we can tell by Paul's writing here that it had been some period of time since Paul had heard anything from them. And so the question starts to be, what's, what's with the delay, Philippians? 
why haven't you sent things to Paul before? And so our, our wheels start turning, and we start assigning blame to the Philippians. They say, man, they didn't care for Paul, but somebody came along later and said, man, we need to, let's do a, you know, a, a fundraising campaign for this guy, Paul. After all, he was the, uh, the first charter member of First Baptist Philippi. He got together with Lydia and the jailer. You remember that when he put the nursery in over there? Paul, he's not very good with the hammer. He kept hitting his thumb with the hammer. Oh, Paul. And they said, all right, you're right. Let's, let's put some money together. Let's send that to Paul. Well, that's, that's certainly not in the text. It's a very entertaining and interesting tale, but it's not in the text. If, as you read through Paul's writings in the New Testament, there's nothing to indicate why the Philippians haven't sent him anything. There's nothing to indicate why they haven't sent him a gift. We simply don't know. But here he writes and he says, man, at some length, you have revived your concern for me. This paints the picture of a, of a plant that yearly continues to bear its fruit. That yearly comes back around and it bears its fruit. And so he's, he's painting a positive picture of his relationship with the church in Philippi. You see, this church in Philippi, it's not that they forgot about Paul. Because we, as we enter into the second clause of this first verse... We read that Paul writes to them, he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so this is the picture Paul is painting. As Paul looked at this situation, and likely there were some in Philippi this whole time that kept saying, man, we need to support Paul. We need to support our missionaries. We need to raise up support so they know we care for them. And then there was somebody who said, man, we're having some problems. We can't find Paul. Paul's a busy guy. You read through the New Testament, he goes from city to city, place to place. You know what's nailed Paul down here? The Roman Empire. They finally have been able to track Paul down. He's in prison. He doesn't have a whole lot of places he can go. Paul finally has a permanent residence. And so their concern, their concern was maintained along the same continuum as their lack of opportunity. You see, Paul looks at this church in Philippi, and he doesn't offer them a word of condemnation. What he offers them is a word of insight. He says, look, I want you to realize something. I realize that, that I was a difficult person to track down. I realize, perhaps, that I was a difficult person for you to steadily hear reports of. But the moment you had an opportunity, the moment you were able to find me, you were faithful to the task. And you gathered up these people and you gathered up some funds and you sent them to me. You sent them on this treacherous journey. And you'll remember it's a journey that almost caused one of their messengers to lose his life. So they have revived their concern for Paul. They've sent him this gift. And this is the end of the letter. And here he's turning to the mode of thanking them for sending that. You see, but after addressing their gift to Paul, he turns to offer a word about his, his source of strength. He begins to discuss their gift in length, and he begins to discuss the situation that he finds himself in, in length. He wrote to them, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, this is an interesting thing to say to someone who has just sent you a gift. Right? When somebody showed up and they gave you $5,000, and you say, hey, 
appreciate that, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And so it, 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 it almost separates and it creates a, a division between their offering to Paul, their gift to Paul, and the reality of his present situation. See, Paul's about to offer them up something that is just so different than what they might think. You see, I'm sure there were some who, when they sat around and they started talking about, you know, we haven't been able to do anything for Paul in a while. Don't you think we should put something together? And they put this together and they said, man, this is going to take his ministry to the next level. This is exactly the thing Paul has been missing out on, and we are uniquely qualified to offer it to him. And so they put together their gift with that thought in mind that there's something that they can give Paul that he can't give for himself. And they send it to Paul. And when he gets it and finally responds back to them and sends this letter back with Epaphroditus, they read that, wait a minute, not that he's speaking of being in need. Well, what was that whole business of sending him money in the first place? See, Paul was primarily rejoicing over their concern for him. We notice in verse 10. You notice he doesn't say, I rejoiced when I received your gift. He says, I rejoiced when I found out you still cared. He said, I rejoiced when I found out that you were praying for me and caring for me all along. And here in verse 11, he says, hey guys, look, I wasn't really in need. And for what reason? How can Paul get away with saying something? So, so such a radical concept, such a radical comment in light of him just having received their gift. You see, the second half of verse 11 says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is sitting in jail. We know from reading in Corinthians that Paul suffered and, and wrote about his suffering more than just about any other person in the New Testament. And he says, this is why I'm not speaking of need. Because every situation I find myself in, I've learned what it is to be content. Whatever situation I am, I'm to be content in that situation. Now this is the difficulty. When Paul writes to them and uses this word content, he's employing here something that a lot of the contemporaries of Paul would have bragged about. It was a highly prized virtue to be content in the day that Paul writes this. And so there were those that read and they say, well, Paul says he's content. Is he, is he follower of Seneca? Is he buying into what it is to be content, to be completely self-sufficient, not to need anybody, but through reason, not to need anything? But, you know, entering into that and using the language of the marketplace, Paul is about to define that concept in terms of Christian language. He's about to define what it is to be content in terms of Christian language. And this is what he does, starting in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Paul's talking about being humbled. Do you remember reading earlier in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians 
where Paul describing his former way of life where he was more zealous than anyone else, advancing more rapidly than anyone else. But for the sake of Jesus, he considered it all to be scubula. He considered it all to be dung, excrement, so that he might attain to the righteousness of Christ. Paul knows what it is to be humbled. And do you remember in chapter 2 and verse 8, that Jesus himself, that Jesus took it upon himself to be humbled. In 2.8, Paul writes, in being found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is so identified with Jesus that he knows what it is to be brought low. And we readily recognize this, right? I mean, that's not a, a really astounding statement for Paul in terms of the fact that we recognize that he's in prison. You know, Paul, hey, we get it. You're in prison. Obviously, being humbled hasn't been a big issue for you. You've been beaten with canes, beaten with whips, stoned. You've been shipwrecked. You've gotten hungry. We get that. You know what it is to be humble. But he throws this other word in there. And he also says, not that I, I just know how to be humbled, but I, and also I know how to abound. This is where it starts to get tricky. You see, Paul looks at his situation and he says, whatever the situation, I know how to be content. Man, I know how to be humbled. And that's one of the things we typically identify in Paul, all the sufferings that he's endured. But looking at his life on a spectrum, he says, but I also know how to abound. He says, I know how to have more than I need. I know how to have some extra jingle in my pocket. I know what it's like to go through that. Man, he knows how to be prosperous and to have something left over. And then he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. When Paul writes this and he says, I have learned the secret, he's driving in this idea that this isn't some abstract principle for Paul. The idea of, of having abundance and the idea of being humbled isn't some abstract principle for him. But this is a reality that he has lived. This is a reality that he has experienced. This is very real for Paul. This isn't something that he you know, is speaking about because he in the main, he has some understanding of what these things are like, but this is something that he has, in fact, lived through. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. You know, quite simply, Paul knows what it is to have a full stomach, and he knows what it is to go hungry. Man, he knows what it is to have a banquet laid before him and be able to eat until the next time he opens his mouth, his gag reflex kicks in and says, whoa, Bubba, you can't take any more falafel. And he knows what it is to open his mouth and to only hear the pangs of his stomach and to be so worn out, so exhausted, so fatigued from having nothing to eat. He's been on both sides of the spectrum. He's been all through this. And then he reiterates, he says, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Continuing to drive home. 
to the Philippian church that, man, I, I, I know what it is to not be sitting in a jail cell in Rome. I know what it is to have all the food I'd ever want to eat, to have all the money I'd ever need to spend. But God, through his grace, has also allowed me to experience times of want, times of suffering, and times of need. And it's in that context that he comes in to 413. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, this verse doesn't say a single thing about our ability to fly. Now, as a child, you know, you, you hear things like this and you watch TV, and so I convince myself I can do anything I wanted to do. Not, not having full faith in this verse, I set a couple of safeguards up, but as a child, I would run down the hall approaching my, bar- my parents' bedroom, and I was about three feet away from their bed, I would just leap and say, I can fly! And then I'd come crashing down on their bed. Now, some of you might say, Matt has a decided lack of faith. You see, this verse doesn't say anything about my ability to fly. This verse doesn't say anything about, about your ability to lift heavy weights. You know, Paul isn't here offering commentary on Man, I can do all things. I can bench 500 pounds. Well, clearly, that is not the case. You see, it says nothing about impossible feats. When you get ready to do something truly dangerous and truly foolish, and you say, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, and you jump off the cliff with no parachute. Friend, you are going to hit the bottom, and the thing that you can do is die. You see, this verse says nothing about such ridiculous matters. But one of the more popular places this voice is employed is when we get ourselves in in so much trouble. When our, our love of money or our lust after women or our desire for something else gets us in such a pinch, in such a bind that we see no other way out. And then somewhere in the recesses of our mind, this verse floats to the top of our sin and filth, and we say, it's okay, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It doesn't say anything about that. It's quite simply not saying anything about that situation. You see, the first thing we must discover in this passage is who is Paul talking about? He says, I can do all All things through him. Now, if you have the King James version of the Bible, King James writes Christ there. But if you look at the Greek text in the earliest manuscripts, it's just not in there. The King James reads, I can do all things through all things through him who strengtheneth me. All things through Christ who strengtheneth me. But if you look at the Greek text, Christ simply is not in there. You'll notice that the The NIV and the New American and the ESV, they all say him. But the King James reads Christ. And so the question then becomes, how do we get to an accurate understanding of who Paul is referring to? You'll remember back when we went through Philippians 1.21. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he said in 1.21... 
that would be Colossians. And so, but in Philippians, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This mantra, this heartbeat of Paul's life, at the very center of everything Paul is, he has this recognition that it is Christ. Moving on in 2.24, Paul writes to them and he says, And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. You see, the person that Paul entrusts all his travel plans that he puts his full trust in is none other than the Messiah, the King, the Lord of Lords, Christ. In 3.9, we read that he says, I want to be found in him, that I want to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that he wants to have one by the process of faith. That for Paul, Paul desires to have the righteousness of Christ. And then in 3.10, he says, speaking again of Christ, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, at the center of everything, Paul realizes he has a, a ready recollection that he can only do good in Christ, that he can only be empowered in Christ. And just in case you think, well, these are certainly veiled references, if we look at 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul writing to Timothy, offering him a word of instruction, says, I thank him who has given me strength, and then he names him. He says, Christ Jesus, our Lord. For why? Because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The person Paul credits with strengthening him is clearly Jesus. It's clearly Jesus. And he can do all things through him who gives him strength. He can do all these types of things through Jesus. You see, verses 12 and 13 are one sentence in the Greek New Testament. So when Paul writes about being strengthened, when Paul writes about being able to do all these things, he's talking about what it is to be hungry. He's talking about what it is to have a full stomach. He's talking about what it is to have plenty of jingle left over in his pocket. And he's talking about what it is to have a negative balance in his bank account. So this verse that, that we so bring into our Americanism, this verse that we so unite with what it is to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, to, to have more, to build a bigger house, to have a faster car, to have all the things I want and more. To have it the American way, or as Burger King says, to have it your way. Paul writes, and in the middle of this, he offers us a commentary on what it is to be content. And not to have more. Not how to overcome impossible odds. Not how to deal with with the remnant effect of sin in our life. And as silly as it might sound, not to, not to fly. Not to live through ridiculous things. Paul is offering us a commentary on what it is to be content. Now why is that so difficult for us to understand? 
And for some of us, why is that so, less, so much less appealing than what we've said this verse over so many times before? You see, the author of Ecclesiastes, he looked at the rich man. And if you've read through Ecclesiastes, he tries a variety of things, trying to see what, what they will bring about in his life. And when it comes to wealth, he says the, the rich man cannot find contentment in his wealth. And in Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10, he writes, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity, meaninglessness, emptiness. He said, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And then he turns and he starts talking about the, the one who works. And he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. When he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, contentment for us is a radically difficult concept for us to gather our minds around. But just as the rich person has to learn to be content in their abundance, the poor person has to learn to be content in their situation. They have to learn to be content in their situation. Now, this is, this is another difficult thing for us. And we set up programs to help people escape the cycle of poverty. And we set up you know, other programs to help the rich people budget their money so they could spend it more wisely on all the things that they want to gather together. Both of these things is, is strictly an end to themselves or antithetical to what it is to be content. They're opposed to what it is to be content. Now, the poor person, the person who struggles to make ends meet, the difficulty for them is to look at the situation, look at their bank account, which is just a sad balance and nothing but a bunch of zeros stacked on top of one another with no number to go in front of. And they resign themselves to this, this sorry phrase and just say, well, you know, it is what it is. It is, I mean, it just is what it is. I'm, I'm going to be poor forever. See, Paul experienced a situation like this when he was writing to the church in Thessalonica. There were those who wanted to be fed, who wanted to have things given to them, but they didn't want to apply themselves to the task. They wanted to be cared for, but they didn't want to do anything for it. The only busy thing they applied themselves to in, in Thessalonica was being busy bodies and spreading information about other people, and they did that quite well. And so writing to them and describing his manner of life when he was with those in Thessalonica, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, For even when we were with you, speaking of Paul and his cohort, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This is in the New Testament? Are you kidding me? Where's the grace in this comment? Man, you read this and you're like, Matt's reading from Proverbs today. And of course, we can, we can discount that because it's the Old Testament. But Paul comes into the situation, and he finds people that don't want to work. He finds people that just want to give. They just want to be the recipients of, of charity. And he looks at that situation, 
And he says, man, that is wrong. You see, for the poor person to come into the situation and say, man, I need to be content at receiving the gifts of others. Paul said, you can't have contentment there. If you're not going to work, if you're not going to make some effort, then as Paul writes, you should go hungry. Man, this is a difficult truth for us to, to gather. But those of us who love our money or are hoarding it and we're keeping it over, we're like, yes, I don't have to give to those poor people anymore. Man, did, honey, did you hear? Write that down. The preacher just said, I don't have to give to poor people anymore. I didn't say that. I said the poor person needs to work. You see, but the difficult thing, I, I, I think for us in our context, the most difficult thing is living in the most opulent display of wealth I've ever seen. It, 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 when you look at the history of mankind, man, we rapidly approach ridiculousness in what it is to have money. We're far richer than most of the people that live in this world, and we mistake that for needing more. We base our bank account on the super rich. We say, well, you know, I've only got this much money in my account. Now, Donald Trump, now he is truly wealthy. I've, I've only got this much money stashed away in my 401k. But this CEO over here, this oil executive, now he is really who Paul is talking to when he's talking about being rich. You see the lie that the, the person, that you and I, the people that have an adequate amount of money, buy into. Is that we just need one more thing. We just need 500 more square feet on the house. We just need one more bedroom. We just need this newer iPhone. We just need to buy an iPad mini. And then finally, when I have an iPad mini, everything will be good in my life. Man, I got news for you. Apple is already on the way to make the iPad mini obsolete. They're already on the way to make the iPhone 5 obsolete. And if Microsoft has their day, they're going to try and make both of them and all Apple technologies obsolete. Now, good luck with that. It's truly difficult to have money and to be content. Paul realized that. You see, on those days when he was starving, in those days he had his fill. On those days when he had no money, in those days when he had an abundance. He had to rely on God through the power of Jesus to give him content contentment. At the heart of all of this, Philippians 4.13 speaks this radical truth into our lives that we battle with being content. We battle with being happy where we are. And Paul recognized that. And so he writes to this group of people that have offered him a gift, that have sent him money. And he tells them in verse 14, I appreciate the fact that you have sent me this gift he says, yet, I want you to know 
it was kind of you to share my trouble. He writes to them and he says, you guys sent me this gift and it was indeed kind of you to share my trouble. And the word he's using there is to fellowship. See, these Philippians, they were concerned with Paul. They were looking for opportunities to minister to Paul. And they saw Paul's sufferings as their own and they joined him and suffered alongside of them. But the truth that Paul so desperately needed them to understand, and that you and I must understand today, that we need to learn that contentment only comes through an identification with Jesus. That there's no magical number out there, there's no line that we need to hit, and then when we hit that, we'll have contentment. Contentment can only come when we push aside when we push aside this idea that we can do it on our own, when we push aside the idea of self-fulfillment, and we are filled with Christ fulfillment. Friends, is your Christianity shaped more by your culture? By those messages conveyed in the media? By this steady onslaught of you need this additional thing? Or is your Christianity is the gospel in your life shaped by your exposure to his word? Let me pray for us.